of uh, the seventh day of uh, Tishrei. It's the thirteenth day of September. Uh, this morning or today's class. So this week's class is dedicated in memory of my cousin Victor Azrak Faraj Ben Serena. Also in his yard site is today in memory of my grandfather David Ben Serena David Gindi, whose yard site is uh, in, a, in two days. And uh, my uncle Al Alexander Shmuel Ben Hana, whose yard site is Friday night. May the Neshamot have an Aliyah from the Torah that we're going to learn. Uh, the, uh, the, the perashah that we read this week, this week is uh, the week of Aseretim uh, Meteshuvah. Yom Kippur is in, uh, uh, is in three days. And we read this week the perashah, which we'll read on Shabbat. It always falls out right after Yom Kippur. We read the perashah, which we read on, uh, on Saturday evening and which we read this morning. Ha'azinu ha'shamayim v'adabera. Listen, heavens, and I will speak. This is the song of Moshe, uh, the uh, Pashat Ha'azinu. Uh, we, uh, we mentioned uh, last week where Hashem tells Moshe, You should write for yourself this Shira. The Ramban uh, says that this Shira actually is Ha'azinu. The Rashbam says this Shira is uh, Devarim, and many of our rabbis say, no, this Shida is actually the entire Torah, that one has to learn the entire Torah, he has to write the entire Torah, he has to learn the entire Torah, and has to be very clear in a person's mouth. So the, uh, the, opinion, the, the opinion I saw that, Rash, that Ramban says that it's Parshat Hazino that uh, we should have Pashat Hazino, we should really know this song. And when we were discussing this on, uh, on Saturday night at, uh, at Seudah Shalishi, it's interesting that uh, in Israel they would teach this to the, to, the, to the students so that they would literally know the Parashat Hazino by heart. That's what we were told. So the, we begin the Pashat Hazino and we come to, uh, to the Pasuk where... Uh, where, uh, where, Hash- where, where Moshe is telling us that there's a problem. Shichet lo, lo that that we're unworthy of Hashem. We're unworthy to be children of Hashem. Yet still, Moshe comes back in the next pasuk, and he says, "No." He says, "The fact is that halohu uh, avicha konecha, that uh, that Hashem actually he is your father. He is your father." He, he, he is. That's how it is. And we see many times in the Torah itself that Hashem refers to us as His children. Banim atem Hashem, bini bechori, your children to Hashem. Moshe goes to Paro and he says, my firstborn Yisrael. So we see this, the relationship between Hashem and Bnei Israel is often as a father and a child. And I think that that father-child relationship is absolutely crucial this week, as we enter into uh, this uh, week of, uh, of uh, Teshuvah, the few days before Yom Kippur and for Yom Kippur itself, there's a story that I told over on Saturday night. It was uh, told by Rabbi Eliezer Ebish. And he, he reminds us of the well-known story of the Trojan horse. The, the Greeks fought a war against the, the Trojan kingdom, against Troy, and they, 10 years, uh, tried to defeat them, tried to come in and conquer them. In 10 years, they were unsuccessful. Finally, they came up with a plan. They came 
and they uh, they saw that they weren't going to win, and so they they told the people of Troy that they were giving up and they were leaving them with a a peace offering. And the peace offering was this giant statue, this giant horse. And as the people of Troy saw the Greek army uh, set sail in their boats leaving, they assumed that they had again won a victory, that they again were unable to be conquered. They opened the gates and they brought in this offering, this giant horse, and they celebrated all night around the horse at their victory. Well, while they were celebrating and once they fell asleep, the Greek army that was out to sea turned their boats around, unknown to the people of Troy, and headed back to Troy. In, uh, in Troy itself, within the horse, soldiers were hitting Greek soldiers, and those Greek soldiers came out. They opened the gates of the city to allow the Greek army to enter, and the city of Troy was conquered. The Trojan horse was the key to that victory. Now, the, the word Trojan horse, we anyone who's on computers, anyone who works with computers, knows that we're often warned to be careful of a Trojan horse. A Trojan horse is when someone sends us an email that looks like a friendly email, and if we open that email or open the the attachment to that email, then what we're doing is we're in a way allowing that other party access into our computer. So that email is in some ways called a Trojan horse. We open it. We don't realize that in essence within that email are those soldiers. Those soldiers are going to unlock our gates, our protection, and let the enemy in to uh, take over our computers. In addition to this idea of a Trojan horse, we have what programmers refer to as a backdoor, a backdoor entrance. It's a legitimately hidden or separate program installed into a larger operating system. And with that, it allows the the computer, uh, the designer of the program to get into a program in order to fix something, but to come in through the backdoor. He can fix a malfunction that arises. And that's sometimes necessary because if someone does come in the other way, you want someone to be able to get in the back door in order to fix it. So it's similar, but in a way, it's to our, it's to our benefit. The rabbis tell us that seven things were created before the world was brought into existence. And one of those things that was created was teshuvah. Teshuvah, really, we have to understand that Hashem sought to bring in the solution before... The problem, and the solution is the teshuvah. Hashem built in a back door, a way in, in order to repair any damage that a person could cause. Teshuvah is the Trojan horse. Teshuvah is the computer program's back door. But we, we often find it so difficult for us to do teshuvah. We mentioned last week that, that a person becomes embarrassed. You know, Dam HaRishon, we said... He sins, and what does he do? He goes to hide. Hashem is ayeka. He's embarrassed. We're embarrassed to sin. Also, the problem is we can't admit that we sin. So many times we take a sin, and we take that sin, and what do we do? We, we, we turn that sin as if it's a mitzvah. We justify the sin to the point where it's a mitzvah. I saw something written about uh, the concept of rodef. Rodef is an nirdaf. Rodef is when you have someone chasing a person to kill them. 
the person being chased, the person whose life is threatened, is allowed to go and kill the Rodef in order to protect his own life. But often what happens is we assume one person's the Rodef, one person's the Nirdaf. We don't see who's really who, especially when it refers to us. We see someone coming after us and maybe the reality is we're going after him, but we're twisting the facts around in order for us to, to justify our deeds. The same way, it's very hard for us often to do Teshuvah. We could look at other people and see everything they do wrong, but when we look at ourselves, you know, but the fact is we go through the, 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 uh, the confession, we see everything and we have to remind ourselves that we do something wrong. We have to be willing to open up a little hole. And if we open up that little hole, then Hashem is willing to take that hole and open it so far. We mentioned last week that we read Sefer Yonah. I mentioned Saturday night that, that in Sefer Yonah something happens. Yonah, he, he, he goes through the city, he tells the people he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, he's forced to go to Nineveh, he eventually comes to Nineveh, he tells the people that they have to repent or they're going to they're gonna suffer the consequences, they're going to die, and what happens is the king gets the people to repent. We mentioned also that the repentance wasn't a complete true repentance, and Yonah is depressed. You're depressed for two reasons. One reason he's depressed is because they're not a real repentance and Hashem is accepting it. But the second reason he's, he's depressed is because it reflects poorly on B'nai Israel. All the Nevi'im telling B'nai Israel to repent. And look, the people of Nineveh have one Navi come and all of a sudden they repent. But really this idea is that, that, that the repentance is a surface repentance. Still Hashem accepts the surface repentance. And Yonah goes out of the city. He's depressed. And what happens He's sitting outside the city, must be a desert area, desert location outside of Nineveh, and he's, he's, he's suffering from the heat. And uh, all of a sudden that night, Hashem causes to grow out of the ground this beautiful, magnificent tree, a beautiful shade tree, we call it Kikayon. And this shade tree is covering Yonah, and he's able to, to, to be there, he's, in, he's able to sit there, it's giving him shade, it's giving him comfort. And that night, Hashem kills this tree. And the next day, the sun is beating down on Yonah. And Yonah is suffering from the sun that he tells Hashem he should kill him. He's so depressed that the tree is gone. He's so depressed. And Hashem turns to Yonah. He says, I don't understand. You're so depressed that the tree is gone. This tree that was not here yesterday, two days ago, was here yesterday and is gone today. That you had nothing to do with its creation. That it was offering you some shade. This is, this is why you're so depressed. And I shouldn't be concerned with a city of tens of thousands of people, my own creation. If Hashem is concerned with every single person on the earth, how much more so is Hashem concerned with Beni Bechori, with my children, with His children, Bnei Israel? We're considered the children of Hashem. And if Hashem is so concerned with the whole world, how much more concerned is He with His children? I heard a beautiful, beautiful story about Rabbi Lau. Rabbi uh, Yisrael Meir Lau, he was the chief rabbi of, of Israel. Uh, and, and in addition to being the chief rabbi, uh, now his son is the, the chief Ashkenaz rabbi. He, he was the, the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. I think he may be the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv again today. Rabbi Lau tells a story of what happened during 1973, the war, the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Now, if we remember some of the details, we remember that uh, we were under attack at first, we weren't ready, 
and uh, and many of the the soldiers and the tanks were bombed. And when a tank gets bombed, it's a huge fire, and and people are literally burned alive. So Rabbi Lau wanted to go and see what can I do? How can I help? How can I give chizuk? How can I do something to uh, to uh, to assist my fellow brothers, my my brothers, these soldiers who are coming back from the war who are injured, and the. Uh, the, the army decided, they said, you know what, Rabbi Lau, please, we're going to send you to a hospital, to a hospital that they're taking all of these burn victims. These burn victims are coming there. Rabbi Lau, please go and see what you could do to talk to them, to help them, to give them some chizuk. So Rabbi Lau went around and he went into a particular room and he noticed there were two doctors, a nurse and a lady surrounding the soldier and the soldier was lying flat on his back. The soldier was motionless, yet he was yelling in extreme, extreme pain, uncontrollable yelling. It was clear from this, from the from the pain that the soldier was completely, completely burned. And Rabbi Lau asked softly what happened, and they said he was burned from head to toe, and the doctor said there's nothing we can do. We keep giving him morphine. We keep giving him more morphine, but it doesn't appear to help. We told him that if he falls asleep, he won't feel the pain of the burns, but he keeps on crying out in agony. Rabbi Lau looks at the soldier. He tries whispering a few comforting words in the soldier's ears, but the shouting doesn't stop at all. It's piercing the ears, his shouting. And with nothing more to do for this, shoulder, for this soldier, Rabbi Lau, he leaves the room and he heads out to the hallway. Outside the room, Rabbi Lau could not stop thinking about the soldier's distress. His heart went out to the soldier. His screams could be heard throughout the hallway. And Rabbi Lau was walking back and forth, tears in his eyes, his heart heavy, beating heavily, his palms are sweating. He's so worried, he so feels bad for the soldier. And then 10 minutes later, the screaming stops. And Rabbi Lau thinks the screaming stops what must have happened he must have succumbed to his pain and the tears start to flow down Rabbi Lau's eyes he writes slowly he heads back to the room and he opens the door and what does he see the soldier is asleep peacefully his mother is sitting at his side Rabbi Lau he said he was shocked he was confused he didn't understand what happened he went over to the mother he whispered what happened and the mother said Rabbi my son was burned from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. His skin was raw everywhere. But the whole time that he was screaming, I was hoping and looking for one tiny place that remained unburned. Finally, Rabbi, I found under the back of his knee a small area. It's about three inches. And that skin was there. It wasn't burned. So I started caressing it. And I gently whispered into his ear again, it's okay, mommy's here. Mommy's here, it's okay, mommy's here. And before long, she said, my son stopped crying and fell asleep. Rabbi Lau would recount this story many years later. And he would say, who? He would ask the question, who was able to comfort the soldier? Who was the one who was able to quiet him down? Who was the one able to make him forget his pain? And he said, it wasn't the doctors, it wasn't me, it wasn't the nurse, it wasn't friends. It was his mother. His mother whose whole goal in life was to care after her son and love him. Someone like that who really, really cares will never give up, will search and search until a spot is found 
to caress and comfort. He said to us the same is true about our relationship with Hashem. The love He has for us is immeasurable. It can't be qualified. It can't be quantified. We read again and again in the Torah that Hashem is our Father. The Navi, the Nevi'im go on so much further. Hashem gave birth to us. Hashem is there for us. Hashem is the one who brought us here. And so even if we're covered, so to say, with sins from head to toe that we don't want to admit, and eventually, you know, sometimes it seeks in. He says it's Hashem who's looking for that minuscule spot, that pure spot, the pristine spot, that one small thought of Teshuvah that we have to have, that one change, that one opening in our heart. And that's what Hashem is looking for. That's where it says find the opening the size of a needle, and I will open it. Hashem wants us more than anything to reunite with Him. There's an interesting idea in this concept of Shira, of song that Moshe tells us. So when we mentioned it last week, and we mentioned it relating to the Torah, we, we were able to quote the rabbis that tell us there are 600,000 letters in the Torah. Really, there aren't, but this crazy way of counting, and 600,000 represents each of us as part of a Torah, and each of us is a required piece of that Torah. Each of us is, uh, any of us are missing, then uh, then the Torah doesn't work. What I saw, which is really also a beautiful thought, is that many of the rabbis say that within the song of Ha'azino is encoded the personal histories of every single soul of Bnei Israel, and all that Bnei Israel will experience from the moment that Moshe uttered it until the coming of the Mashiach. It's, it's just an amazing for us to say that in these few Pesukim, all of human history, each of us is encoded within that Perasha. How could that be? And, and we're going to come back to that in one second, but, but really to, to explain why each of us is so important, why each of us has a place, you know, sometimes people think, you know, why am I important? You know, the rabbi who learns, he's important. The sadiq who does, the guy who gives charity, I'm not so important. Hashem doesn't care about me. But we have to understand that each of us has a purpose. Each of us has a reason for being. And no one's purpose is the same as someone else. I wouldn't have been created unless I have a specific purpose. Something that I have to fulfill, not only for me individually, but me as part of all of Kala Yisrael. And, the, and a beautiful way to illustrate this is the Rabbi, Rabbi Abitan loved telling over the story that he heard from Rabbi Pesach Kron. Rabbi Pesach Kron tells this wonderful story about a certain... Uh, symphony conductor his name was Arturo Toscanini Arturo Toscanini was a, was a famous conductor he passed away I think in, the, in 1957 he was in his late 80s when he passed away and, uh, and a, a, a couple of years before he passed away there was a, a well known biographer who was writing the, the life story of Arturo Toscanini and one day the writer called Toscanini <coughs> at the time living in New York and he asked him if he could visit him and Toscanini told him that he could not meet him the next day he said that he planned to listen to a concert on the radio of an orchestra that he had conducted the previous year but if he promised that he would be quiet and he would sit and listen without disturbing him he would invite him over so the next night, they, he came over. The next afternoon, he came over. And they listened from Europe to this 
this orchestra's performance. And when it was finished, the writer, he said, wasn't that magnificent, Maestro? Wasn't that fantastic? And Toscanini said, no, it wasn't. And he said, you know, I was very disturbed. He said, there's supposed to be 120 musicians. Among those 120 musicians, there are 15 violinists. I only heard 14. The writer couldn't believe his eyes, but he didn't want to question this great maestro, but he really wanted to verify this story. He thought it was crazy. Over a shortwave radio, he's listening to a concert that sounds so good, and this, this conductor, this older man, is saying, no, somebody's missing. So the next day, he was able to reach the head of the orchestra in Europe. And uh, he said, was there anything amiss last night? And the director said, yeah, there were supposed to be 120 musicians, but... Uh, one of the 15 violinists called in sick, so we did the orchestra, we did the concert without him. Then that afternoon, he returned to Toscanini. He asked him how he was able to hear a missing violin in an orchestra of 120 musicians. Toscanini answered with authority, and he said, there's a great difference between you and me. As part of the audience, everything sounds great to you. But I, being the conductor, must know every sound that comes forth from the orchestra. When I heard the concert, I noticed that some of the notes were missing. I knew immediately that one violinist was missing. Rabbi Krohn told the story in the name of a Rabbi Moshe Plutchik. When I heard the story from Rabbi Plutchik, he apparently he was driving after he was uh, confronted by a student who didn't see his purpose in learning. He was driving up to the mountains. He was falling asleep. He ended up tuning into this Station, and they were doing the biography of uh, Arturo Toscanini. And when he heard this story, he said, Rabbi, Rabbi Plutchik said, he said, it's an amazing thing. He said, you know, we don't understand that, you know, we can't appreciate everyone's role. But to Hashem, he's the conductor. He's the conductor of the world symphony. He's the creator. He knows every note of music that could come forth. To him, every single person, every word of Torah, everything that we do, every mitzvah has a role and a purpose. He says, we're the musicians in Hashem's orchestra. He says, we are the ones. The drummer can't play the cello. The cellist can't play the flute. The flutist doesn't play the violin. Each person has to fulfill his own role. We can't stand in someone else's shoes. We have to recognize that every single person is there that has his own role. This idea that each of us is uh, is represented in the in the in the Perashav Hazino, it's 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 a very hard one to understand. How could it be that in that in that in one Perashah all of us are there, all human history is there. And there's a beautiful story I saw Rabbi Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg he brings down and he says, written in Seder Hadorot, and I saw after so many of the Acharonim comment on this story. In Seder Hadorot, it tells us the story of Ramban, who we just mentioned, Rav Moshe ben Nachman. And the Ramban, who was in Spain, and remember, Ramban was in Spain after it was already taken over by the Christians. And there was so much pressure on the Jews if they wanted to be successful in any aspect of life to convert. And once they converted, this was the beginning of the, the, uh, the Inquisition that made sure that once you converted, it had to be a real conversion or you were, you were going gonna to be uh, tortured. And so there were so many, so many Jews who, who, in, who unfortunately 
who who converted in those days. We know the famous story of the uh, the disputation where he, where where Ramban is uh, is arguing against uh, a convert, and uh, he's guaranteed that he could say whatever he wants, and in the end he's forced to flee Spain because they're going to kill him. Now the the story written, the story brought in Seder Hadoro tells us about a certain student of the Rambam. Ramban had a student, his name was Rabbeinu Avner. He was Rabbi Avner, he was a great rabbi. And he was destined to become a great person and he decided at one point that he had it and he was converting to Christianity. And as he converted to Christianity, he was able to rise in the ranks. He became a very powerful person, feared by all. And after many years had passed and he was gaining his power and his growth in Christianity, he sent for his former teacher, his former master. And it was on Yom Kippur that he demanded that the Ramban come in front of him. And Ramban had no choice but to comply. And when the Ramban was in front of him, what did he do? He took a, a pig in front of the Ramban. He killed the pig. He cut it up. He cooked it and he ate it. And after he finished eating, he asked the Ramban, So, dear Rabbi, how many transgressions for which my soul will get karet have I committed in this act? The Ramban answered, Four. And Rabbeinu Avner said, No, five. And he awaited his teacher's reply. He anticipated a dispute, but the Ramban stared at him with anger. And he fell silent, Rabbeinu Avner. He still had a small measure of respect for his former master. Perhaps recognizing this, the Ramban asked him a question. He said, what's the reason for your perfidy against the religion? Why did you convert? Why did you leave Judaism? And Avner answered, he said that one year, the Ramban was teaching the Perashah of Ha'azino, and he noted in the Shirah of Ha'azino that all of the mitzvot, all that would come to pass in the world, all the souls of the world are contained in it. And Avner says this was so ridiculous to him. It seemed impossible. And it caused him to question the entire Torah, his entire life. And it transformed him into a different person and gave him the guts to leave Judaism. When the Ramban heard this, he said that he still held by his earlier words. And to show Avner that, that this was so, what did he do? The Ramban challenged him to ask him about anything he would like. Avner thought for a moment and then said, You know what, Rabbi? Show me my name in the song. Answered the Ramban, So you have spoken and I will show you. The Ramban went into the corner. He prayed to Hashem that the verse should come into his mouth. And all of a sudden, he was able to quote the Pasuk from the Perasha. And the Pasuk says, Amarti af'ehem, I might have reduced them to nothing, I said. It says, Ashpitame enosh I will erase their memory from among men. He said to his student, if you look at the third letter, of each word, Amarti, Reish, Af'ehem, Aleph, Ashbita, Bet, Me'enosh, Nun, Zichram, Reish. The third letter of each of these five words spells Rabenu Avner.
Rabbeinu Avner heard this and his face fell. And something happened to him at that very moment. And looking down at the floor, a shred of guilt, a shred of teshuvah entered into his heart. And he turned to the rabbi and he said, Is there any way to heal what I've done? And the Ramban answered him. And he said, You heard what the verse says. It says, Ashbita me'enosh zichram. May their memory erase among men. Immediately, Avner boarded a ship with neither captain nor sailors. Letting the wind carry him wherever it did, he was never heard from again. It's interesting that we look in this pasuk, and if we take the words, the, the words, the three final letters spell the word Moshe. Moshe Ramban, Moshe ben Nachman, returned to the world in order to give a tikkun to the soul of Rabbeinu Avner. And the final letters of all the five words in the verse, the Amarti, Af'ehem, Ashbita, Me'enosh, Zichram, the final five letters spell out the word Hashamayim, alluding to the first verse of the song of Ha'azinu, alluding to this first verse that this is where everything is. It's so interesting that when we look into the gematria brought by our rabbis into this verse, into this specific pasuk, it goes on and on with such amazing, amazing things. We see within it hidden Moshe. We see within it hidden the, the chokhmah that Moshe represents. We see so much, so much hidden. We see that the name Avner, which has a gematria of 253, is a triangle of 22, meaning we add 22, 21, 20, 19, all the way down to 1. And that's the 22 letters of the alphabet. We also see something very interesting. We have the original Avner, Avner ben Ner. He was the, uh, he was the, uh, the general of, uh, of Shaul HaMelech. He was his minister of war. And uh, the, the, the soul of this Avner relates to the soul of Avner. And that soul relates to, to the name. Uh, it, it just goes very detailed. But I saw the interesting, the Kabbalah says that this Avner is going to return as the minister of war of the Mashiach. There's so much hidden. There's so many secrets within the Torah. There's so much there for us to look into. But the bottom line we have to remember is that each of us is so important. Each of us is so crucial. Each of us is there. That Hashem cares about us so much. When I finished the class, one of the guys asked me to tell a story again that I told some years back. When I was in Atlanta, exactly two years ago, uh, in, 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 the, in, in the time right now, in the Aseret Yimit and I was in the Kolel in Atlanta, and someone in the Kolel recognized me from Aventura and he asked if by chance I was flying down from Atlanta to Fort Lauderdale and he told me to be very careful and he laughed and I didn't understand I said I, I don't know what are you talking about he said he thought that everyone knew what happened the week before and the news describes what happened there were Delta passengers they were on their way from Atlanta to Fort Lauderdale and they received a major scare. Their plane dropped nearly 30,000 feet in the space of under eight minutes, and the plane was forced to divert to Tampa. 
the the flight aware shows the Delta flight diving from an altitude of thirty nine feet thousand feet to ninety nine hundred feet in seven and a half minutes. While in flight between Atlanta and Fort Lauderdale, this flight made a rapid 2353, a rapid controlled descent due to possible aircraft depressurization. The aircraft was then being evaluated by maintenance and technicians. Air masks, oxygen masks dropped from the top of the plane. Chaos sort of ensued. The passengers said that how hectic it was, there was not a person not hyperventilating, not scared out of their mind. The man told me that a local rabbi was on the flight and after returning to Atlanta on Sunday told them in the Kolel that whatever they heard in the news, it was worse. He said that people literally thought it was over. It was Elul. Would he make it to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? He said the words to himself. He said it flashed in front of his eyes the words Shuvu Banim from Yirmiyahu. Shuvu Banim, return children. He thought of the words we read a few weeks back when Moshe tells the people, Banim Atem Lashem, your children of God. And he recalled a story which he had heard, which made him smile. And along with the reassuring words of the pilot, brought him some comfort. What was the story? A businessman was late for his flight. He didn't have a confirmed seat. He worried if he would even make it onto the plane. He reached the boarding gate just before it closed, sweating an hour of breath. He, he accepted, he scanned the boarding pass at the counter and quickly made his way to the plane. Ay, he had a middle seat, but at least he had a seat. Arriving at his row, he was happy there was room above for his carry-on. He apologized to his companions. There was a middle-aged woman sitting on the window and a little girl sitting on the aisle seat. After he stowed his bed, bed on top, he took a seat between them. After the flight took off, he began a conversation with the little girl. She appeared to be about the same age as his daughter. And she was busy with a coloring book. He asked her a few questions. How old are you? What are your hobbies? She liked to draw. She liked cartoons. What were your favorite animals? She liked horses. She loved cats. And he found it strange that such a young girl is traveling alone. But he kept his thoughts to himself, kept an eye on her, said, you know, just to make sure she's going to be okay. After about an hour into the flight, he said, when they were serving drinks, an announcement came on from the captain that the flight attendant should discontinue service. Everyone should buckle in. They were heading for very bumpy weather. All of a sudden, the plane began experiencing extreme turbulence. The pilot came over the PA system. He told everyone to fasten their seatbelts, remain calm, as the weather was much rougher than expected, but he was looking for a way above or through it. Several times over the next half hour, the plane made drastic dips, turns, shaking all the while. It was like this never-ending roller coaster ride. Children were crying. Many, like the woman in the seat, had their eyes closed. They're breathing deeply. They're praying with incredible intent. And as the turbulence continued and seemed to get worse, the man began sweating. He sees himself clutching the seat. All of a sudden, his stomach keeps coming to his mouth. He doesn't know what to do. He whispers, please, God, with each shake of the plane. Please, God, he's saying it over and over again. Meanwhile, he looks at the little girl who he's going to be worried about and make sure he takes care of her. And she has a coloring book and a crayon. She put them away in front of her. Her hands are calm. They're resting on her legs. And she doesn't seem worried at all. 
then all of a sudden, as, as suddenly as it began, the, the, the turbulence ended. The pilot came on, he apologized, and he apologized for discontinuing the drinks, but he apologized for bumping all around, he apologized for everything, and he said, you know what, stay buckled up, we're going to land in a couple of minutes. And as the plane started to go down to land, the man turned to the little girl and he says, you're such a brave little girl. I, I, I never met a braver person in all my life. Tell me, dear, how is it that you were so calm and all of us, all the adults were so afraid? And she looked at the man sitting next to her in the eyes and she said, my dad is the pilot. He's taking me home. The rabbi said that during those seven minutes when his plane was flying down at incredible speed, he kept imagining himself as the child of the pilot. He reminded himself again and again that Hashem is our father who loves us. We're going into Yom Kippur. I, I said last week, Mariah said, We remind ourselves, we sing, we sing it out loud. We just have to open up a little opening. We have to remember Hashem is our father. Hashem is our father. And even if we push ourselves away from Hashem, Hashem is always there. He's always our father. There's no leaving Hashem. We said if a child does terrible things, goes on drugs, becomes horrible, runs away, and all of a sudden he calls home and says, Dad, I want to come home. His father's going to come anywhere to meet him. Hashem is saying to us, all you have to say is, I want to come home and I'll come out and meet you. The whole idea of these days before Yom Kippur, settle between each other. Create a beauty between each other. Create a harmony within each other. And when we come to Kippur, we turn to Hashem and say, please, Hashem, we want to come home. We sinned. Open it up. We're willing to reach out. If we reach out, Hashem is willing to take us. Hashem is our father. No parent leaves a child. No parent. Every parent is there. Hashem is looking for that space, that space to connect. We just have to be willing to try. Look at us and just like we say at the end of Yom Kippur that the Kohen Gadol walks out and he knows that his prayers were answered and they celebrate. We're going to walk out of Kippur. We're going to celebrate. We're going to come into Sukkot. We're going to raise our lulav up in the sky as a victory, as a victory pronouncement that we've been successful. We're going to return with Teshuvah. Hashem is going to smile upon us. Hashem is going to look at us again. We're going to be Beni Bechori, Banim Atem Hashem, And Hashem will bring Mashiach Bimerabi Amenu Amen. And we'll all be able to then see within the Perashah Hazino all of human history, no matter how hard it is to understand, it's there for us to learn and to understand. May everyone be written for a year of health and happiness, peace, and prosperity.